Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. And today we're joined by our managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. Hey, Devendra. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And this is going to be a Sherilyn-less episode. She had to run out for, um, you know, something really important. So we're going to also have Ben Elman on, our producer, to chat about a couple things. Let's take a second to uh, thank Terrence for the music that we've been using as the outro for this entire time. Our cool hip outro music. Love it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just glad that somebody's getting use out of it and somebody is forced to listen to the things that I make sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Your creation has found a home and it's growing and uh, it's in hundreds of years every every week, I guess. I don't know. Uh, as always, folks, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. All that fun stuff. All that helps us you know, helps people actually find the show. And that's something we'd like to do. You can drop us an email at podcastengadget.com and we'll try to answer any questions. Today, we're going to focus on the Sundance Film Festival. This year, it was all virtual, like so many other events uh, over the past year. But they were also doing it in different ways, right? So in addition to just watching films at home, which they made pretty easily, and we'll talk a bit about all that stuff, they also created this virtual world where you could walk uh, walk around, talk to other people, um, basically go watch some of the like VR and mixed reality exhibits uh, as if you were actually at Sunday. So they went really hard on this in a way um, that I don't think any other film festival has. And I think so far... Basically, as we're winding it down, I think it's been the most successful film festival I've seen virtually uh, over the past year. So I don't know. What has your experience been, Terrence? Because I know you were deep into watching a lot of uh, a lot of the movies and exploring all this. Yeah, I mean, I I'm going to have to take your word on it being the most successful the virtual <laughs> film festivals because this is the first one that I've done. Uh, I was in general pretty impressed with how they pulled it off. Um, and I, I will say right off at the top, slightly biased just because uh, – I think like you, Devendra, I'm a huge film nerd. When I first mm-hmm. uh, went to school, my major was cinema studies. So like getting to do Sundance is like a big deal uh, yep. for me. But, uh, you know, I thought the way the presentation was in VR um, and especially focusing on the VR experiences in the VR gallery was very smart and well executed. Um, there were, I think, some obvious pain points and struggling uh on the technical side uh, with some of the organizational stuff with like the general film part. But I think, Mm -hmm. again, people are still trying to figure out how to pull this stuff off remotely. It's a lot harder, I think, to manage streaming movies in limited ways to hundreds or thousands of people around the country in like this organized fashion. It's a lot easier to just throw a person in a theater. Exactly. Exactly. And there are these like weird limitations in place too, where it's like, 
oh, only there are only a certain amount of t- tickets per movie. There are only a certain amount of people who can start a stream at any point. You're restricted in terms of like when, how long you could watch a movie to. Yep. Uh, for premieres, it was like four hours after the premiere time you could start a movie. But after that, you're out of luck. And uh, yeah, a lot of weird restrictions. And I've talked to people who are like, you know, why don't they just kind of open this up to everybody? Let anybody come in and watch these things at any point. Um, sure. I, I could totally see that. Um the thing about these film festivals that is worth noting, though, is that a lot of these movies are coming in without a distributor. You know, they don't have anybody who uh, who is actually going to, you know, release the movie yet. So these movies have to be sold, basically. That's why they're being shown, so that potential people could actually buy them and bring them to wider audiences. And also for uh, when it comes to the tech platform, you do actually, these companies, you have to pay more if a ton more people end up watching these movies. So that's why they kind of have to limit how much, you know, how much they're streaming out to people, how much bandwidth there is, their licensing restrictions and mm-hmm. stuff too. It's not the best thing in the world. It is a little confusing, but, you know, they did have tickets for general viewers and you could buy tickets to some movies. Um, you didn't have to like do the whole Sundance pass. They also did this thing um, called the Explorer Pass, which was 25 bucks. Which isn't and bad. that allowed you... <laughs> Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, that allowed you to go see all the VR projects and walk around the VR world and do stuff if you had a VR headset, or you could explore that in your in your browser too. And let me talk a little bit about that because I think um, that's what really makes Sundance stand out. Uh, last week I talked about you know we did a preview on this, but this week I actually got to put on my Oculus Quest after some screenings walk around the like virtual cocktail party it's the film party lounge uh which this entire thing is set up in like a an orbiting satellite around earth and it was it felt like going to an actual you know film party where i would be dumped into a scenario i would end up walking around the room i'd see who was there um some of it you know some of the folks there would be people i know and i'd go up and chat to them uh or most of the time it would just be people i don't know at all but I would like linger around the sides and just like be a wallflower in the party room. Um, it is completely replicates that awkward experience of being at a party where you don't know a lot of people. But when I did find people I knew, it was fun to be able to just walk up to them in VR, have a conversation. These are some people that I haven't talked to since I moved out of New York, really. So it did kind of replicate that serendipitous experience of going to an event and running to somebody you, you're actually friends with, but you don't normally keep in touch with regularly. So here's so, a question. Yeah. Did that feeling of being a wallflower feel nostalgic anyway? Because oh, yeah. I've gone to like literally one kind of like radio conference that uses similar technology, not like full blown VR, but kind of a browser based mm-hmm. thing. And I had no idea how much I missed the <laughs> feeling of just walking around and being like, oh, I don't really know anyone. Like, let's see if I can exactly. maybe just sidle up to a group of people and they'll uh, let me uh, like into that little circle. Mm-hmm. I. I normally that would be like oh i hate this i just wish that i uh (laughs) like had some serious friends around here but now i was like wow this is amazing like this is a really specific social interaction that i actually kind of miss and there is there's a a bonus to doing it in vr though too which is once you've had enough of feeling awkward and standing around a bunch of people you don't know you just take the headset off and you're back home comfortable 
with you're done yeah <laughs> yeah also like the social graces you don't necessarily need to do all of the exact same things i don't know if you need to quite excuse yourself or something like th- you can just drift away and be like oh no like the darn vr controller or something yeah my mic's <laughs> not yeah, working yeah just like blame it on that and irish goodbye out of every single thing I mean, I'm just going to throw out there. I'm yeah. an expert at Irish goodbying no matter what, VR or real life. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I remember when we could actually have drinks. Uh, Terrence would just disappear sometimes. It was pretty great. The VR stuff, I, I just want to say, like, the idea of going to a festival, right, or a conference, one of the main things, uh, one of the main benefits of actually going there in person is that you could just hang around and bump into somebody. And mm-hmm. that did happen to me a couple times during the Sundance VR stuff. Like, people I've talked to or interviewed stopped by and said hi and said, hey, how's it going? And... It is it is a bad you know not a great facsimile for actually going in person or anything but given the restrictions on travel and everything right now it was nice to have at least something and I hope Sundance uh, keeps this around uh, you know moving forward um, so there's that uh, but let's move on to some things we saw at the show. Uh, it's a film festival. We saw a lot of great documentaries and feature films, but there were a lot of good like VR experiences too. So why don't we just like break down some of the best things we saw at the show? Um, I could talk about a couple things. Uh, I saw this documentary called Users by Natalia Almada. I wrote it up uh, at Engadget as well. Uh, it is sort of like a meditation on living with technology and being in like a tech-infused world right now, uh, but also raising kids in that environment. Um, it really reminded me of the Katsi films like Koina Skatsi and everything, where most of it was just uh, a great score that was composed by her husband and performed by the Kronos Quartet. Uh, incredible sound design, mm-hmm. because most of the time you're just watching images. So one of the first images is like of a child being rocked to bed in the snoo smart bassinet. And that's a sound I know all too well because it's like this weird robotic, uh, you know, kind of rumbling that happens as your child is crying and trying to go to sleep. Um, There's that. uh, There's tremendous waves. At some point, they uh, shoot scenes through some of the California wildfires and they actually are in a car while, you know, the forest is just lighting up around them, which I found kind of terrifying. Um, it's a rare documentary that pays really good attention to sound. Uh, they apparently got some money from Dolby to do a Dolby Atmos mix and a Dolby Vision mix. So I didn't get to see any of that in the actual Sundance stream. Uh, but I'm going to be watching this movie again just to like see what they do with that tech. It is a beautiful thing. Not much narration, but I really enjoyed it. Is this one of those movies you would call like a visual poem or something? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it is sort of like a poem. Uh, there is not much narration from Natalia Almada, but it is in there to kind of frame the story. And then it sounds a little robotic, and that's actually on purpose, and that's revealed later on in the film too. Uh, so yeah, it's not like a it's not a plot heavy you know documentary or anything. It is more like a meditation about how we relate to the natural world, and you know how so much of our lives are also completely reliant on technology so it doesn't it's not really prescriptive it's not saying tech is bad it's not black mirror but i think it is a good thing to step away from and like just look at like how we're coinciding with things are there any like major things you want to call out terrence terrence like we could go back and forth here sure i mean uh, i do just want to chime in and say that i i enjoyed users it's a movie that i feel like i do need to watch Mm -hmm. again though um yeah you know we're doing this for work so i was kind of juggling a bunch of different things while simultaneously watching this on my laptop, which was definitely not the ideal way to experience it. Uh, 
But on the plus side, that does mean that I had it like hooked up to like good speakers and the sound design is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just kind of jumping off that sound design piece uh, thing, one of the things that I did check out was a experience called Seven Sounds, which isn't really virtual reality. Um, the mm-hmm. creator called it audio cinema, which I think is kind of like <laughs> a little bit pretentious way to describe it, but not bad. Um, it sure. was that's literally how radio people describe their bigger <laughs> projects. So yeah, go yeah, on exactly. Um, it was very interesting sonically. Um, I I had some issues with it. I didn't think it was like a full blown success in a lot of ways. Uh, but it was sort of exploring how uh sounds connect us in these weird ways. So it sort of uh opens with them explaining um, the concept behind how we all uh, experience sound subjectively and then runs through a bunch of like sounds representing of late relationships of stuff. So like mm-hmm. one of the things they play a recording of a bird that I've now forgotten the name of because I'm <laughs> terribly unprepared for this. Um, but it was like the last of that bird ever to exist calling out mm-hmm. for a mate and there would be no response. Uh, yeah. So like, and it's like all of these things. Um, and it was, it was very interesting. Um, you know, and a lot of the sounds had compelling stories. I did. There was a decent amount of narration. And that was the one thing that I thought mm-hmm. took away from it was there was a little bit too much of that. Uh, yeah. In a way that, I thought detracted from the experience because it didn't feel rooted in the same world. It wasn't like listening to uh, an episode of like radio lab where it's you, it sounds like a reporter on the ground experiencing that thing. It's like they played a sound clip and then a guy talked to you about Mm -hmm. it. Um, But it was, it was interesting. It was 35 minutes. It was definitely worth uh, my time and effort. I don't regret doing Mm -hmm. it. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is not, doesn't have anything to do with the New York Times like sounds issue. There was like a New York Times magazine thing that was actually relatively similar, like interesting sounds from around the world. No mm-hmm. relation. I don't think so, but I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not aware. Of it this. sounds like yeah, a similar sort of project, right? Yeah, and uh, I do think like with the rise of podcasting and everything, like there, are, what what is that? The name of the podcast turns. It's just about interesting sounds oh uh 20,000 20, hertz? hertz yep yeah yeah exactly like we are now that we're spending more time thinking about the audio medium like people are really exploring this in new ways so i do feel like now is a good time for something like seven sounds right mm-hmm. uh, another movie uh we both saw actually is a glitch in the matrix which is rodney asher's new documentary about simulation theory yeah okay <laughs> about a lot of people who think we may be living in a simulation uh, personally, I, I found it really entertaining, but it is not like a super illuminating movie or anything. Um, it's not going to deconstruct simulation theory or like prove or disprove it or anything, but it is more about how normal people, you know, go about life while believing this. Um, I found that kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Terrence, how do you feel about this? Uh, I think I felt about it the same way I felt about his previous movie room 237 which is yeah yeah i think that ultimately whatever the movie's stated topic is isn't really what that movie is about like room 237 mm-hmm. isn't really about the shining and i don't really think that a glitch in the matrix is about simulation theory it's yeah surface level that's what it's about but really it's a their movies about obsession 
Like, mm-hmm. this is about people so obsessed with this idea that we're living in a simulation that it actually changes the way they w- live. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that in some ways it's a movie about people who perhaps have uh, some form of, like, mental illness in a way. Mm-hmm. In some cases, yeah. Um, yeah. Which – yeah, I don't know. I was I was uncomfortable with some of that. Uh, it felt like it was presenting that in a way for entertainment that I wasn't necessarily 100 percent comfortable with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> it doesn't really challenge a lot of the things people are saying, although I think there is one scenario about somebody who really, really loved The Matrix. Yep. And a lot of you probably know somebody who liked that after that movie came out. But whose obsession with the Matrix ended up turning deadly. And if you paid attention to the news back then, you'd probably even recognize the name. I'm mm-hmm. not going to spoil what happens in the movie, but it is like it does show like how somebody who has this uh, basically like weird perception of reality, how it could influence the way it affects the people they love, like their families or the way they treat other people. Um, I kind of wish this documentary did a little more like rigorous exploration about what it meant for people's inner lives when you believe the entire outer world is completely artificial it doesn't really do that it is sort of like baby's first you know uh entrance into simulation theory um but yeah it is about the people it's about obsession um and just so you all know we actually have a conversation with rodney asher and Natalia Almada. We're going to have a special interview episode that's going to be coming later this week, too. Ben is in the process of putting that together now. And we have a good chat about all of this. And, you know, the first thing I asked Rodney Asher is, you know, do you believe in simulation theory? And he says, I have no clue, you know, because (laughs) this isn't a movie about kind of settling the debate. Yeah. It is a movie about, um, yeah, exploring why people believe Thankfully, this, right? thankfully, it isn't one of those <laughs> movies like What the Bleep Do We Know or something like that, which is just mm-hmm. like, ooh, like, uh, what a particle physics, like quantum mm-hmm. physics. Uh, I love it. The thing that I'm curious about, because I haven't seen this movie, is how much... Uh, uh, a glitch in the matrix ends up talking about like billionaires like Elon Musk, uh, mm-hmm. like their um, part in fomenting the idea of simulation theory because everybody thinks oh, that they're cool. yeah. very smart and that's how like the these ideas pollinate. I think so. I think so. He is, uh, you see clips from Elon Musk. Uh, you see clips from George Hotz, by the way, if you all remember the original. One of the original iPhone jailbreakers, uh, GeoHots, uh, in South by at South by in 2017 or 2018, I believe he did this panel, which was just like, we got to hack the simulation. You know, we got to get out of here. I have to jailbreak reality. And, uh, I was sitting there in the audience as he went over this and it was 45 minutes of this guy who seemed like it was sort of like a Kramer from Seinfeld thing where he just like stumbled on the stage was just like really went into his insane theory about like uh, the simulation is real we gotta get out of here it was him repeating that for 45 minutes it was one of the wildest things i've ever seen in person I'd, i'm sure like he was doing a lot of that for effect too um we got a glimpse of that in this movie but i would have loved like maybe a chat with him maybe more of him uh certainly a chat with elon musk would have been nice but rodney asher said like he wanted to focus on normal people not the like high profile people you know who espouse this which which i could appreciate to be fair mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. one of my criticisms of of this film is that there was about a thousand percent too much elon musk for my tastes <laughs> um yeah even though he was barely in it it's enough <laughs> it's enough enough is too much uh they, it does do something interesting with philip uh with uh philip k dick right yes like where it 
I've never seen this before, but apparently at one point he did a talk uh, in Europe somewhere about, I don't know if you guys know his experience uh, later in life with the exegesis, which is this thing where he went in to have an operation on his wisdom teeth. And I believe as he was coming out of it, he had this weird sort of like out of body like experience where he started to like believe he was living in either another timeline or another reality and he sat down and for several years he wrote down 8000 words about this like this belief that he had somehow transcended the nature of our reality uh so that's called the exegesis i believe they released like a thousand words of it in 2010 it's just like gobbledygook of <laughs> Vildkadic, like being like uh, yeah um uh he believes he was like a really devout christian in the past so i think believe when before when people talked about this they were like oh this is a religious experience from Vildkadic. but um now in the context of this movie it really does sound like he is somebody who somehow like something happened to him and it's like in one of those uh the animatrix movies where like just like something in the programming of our reality got broken and he was able to like see outside the shell and see the you know the beings or something that are actually running the simulation and he just devoted his life to it so hearing him talk about that was kind of interesting because he's a smart guy and he's not like a blowhard like elon musk i want to hear more about his crazy religious awakening in a way i found that interesting um there, there are a lot of interesting bits and there are a lot of like terrifying bits too i saw this movie late at night and there's one sequence that is just yeah. horrific yeah uh i guess we're doing spoiler free reviews of these. spoiler free but yeah uh certainly it will make you think of let the bodies hit the floor in a uh, different way or not <laughs> i don't we, know we, we 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 won't dig too much into it but i did think that that it was it was a very tense and uh upsetting sequence that is perhaps undermined by the use of that song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so since we're talking about like oh no spoilers like when are people going to be able to see this let's actually pull the camera back a little bit and say like it seems like this sundance like the movies premiering at this sundance seem mm-hmm. like they're going to be more accessible faster than most yeah in previous years. And this is something that's been speeding up year over year, especially with things going straight to Netflix. It might only be like three or four months between Sundance and when something is available on Netflix. You can see a glitch in the Matrix today. The day you're hearing the audio version of this podcast, February 5th, it is out for rent. It has already been sold. Rodney Asher doesn't need any help, you know, Mm -hmm. selling his movies because Room 237 was such a huge hit for him. Uh, but yeah, yeah, basically we're going to see a lot of these, uh, the biggest Sundance deal ever happened this week. Uh, Apple paid $25 million for Coda, which is a great, uh, family drama. It's about a child of, uh, deaf adults and it's sort of like a high school drama, but also a great family story too. And, um, you know, it was, I could see why somebody's paid that much. Uh, last year it was Palm Springs, a movie that ended up on Hulu. I believe Hulu paid around 20 million for that. So the deals are Jeez. getting bigger. Movies are still getting bought. Um, and they're coming and yeah, out We're going to be able to see them more easily. Yeah. And they're coming out faster. Terrence, anything else that you really like that you want to shout out? I'm going to go down my list really quickly in a bit too. Uh, I want to shout out uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair, which mm. I watched yesterday after work and felt compelled immediately to rewatch, but did not get mm-hmm. a chance to. Um, I was trying to figure out how to describe it to somebody, and I think the best I was able to come up with was it's as if Jim Jarmish directed a found footage movie about creepypasta. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, you got me. <laughs> it's it's very slow. It's very deliberate, um, 
and it's filled with a lot of misdirection, but it's very mm-hmm. expertly executed. Um, I would say it it pitches itself and sets itself up as a horror film and then does not really go down that route 100%. Um, mm-hmm. so, be, so be prepared for that. Like if you're going into it expecting like a found footage horror movie, it isn't really that. It's very much a coming of age drama told through like creepypasta and internet fads and stuff um it's it's really really super good and i want to say that it's probably the first like film it's the only film i saw at sundance and the first like independent film in quotes that i've Mm -hmm. seen in a long time that recaptures that like thrill of late 90s early aughts like indie cinema where it was like Mm -hmm. super rough shoestring budget nobody's got a dolly for like smooth camera pans it's a guy with a camera walking through the woods with an actor uh Mm -hmm. and you know that um and it's a more Blair Witch than uh than a lot of what we got yeah but it's definitely not Blair Witch though like I also want to be clear about like it's not it's not a found footage movie in the way that the Blair Witch is or uh-huh. uh, a movie I recommended to you actually last week, uh, Lake Mungo. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. It's told primarily through like what are essentially like YouTube video clips. There are pieces of the film that exist outside of that and you follow the character around. So it's not all that. But a lot of the uh, plot is pushed forward by like self-shot YouTube clips mm-hmm. Um it's very interesting. It's, I thought, very expertly done. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, but, like, if you're into David Lynch or, like, Jim Jarmusch movies or, sure. like, you're, I think you'll enjoy it. The good weird shit. Yeah. If you like the good weird shit. Uh, I, yeah, I, I missed that one. I hope to check it out soon. Um, this seems like it was a good show for like a lot of like weird internet fads and stuff too. Uh, there was also CryptoZoo, which I haven't seen, but I know a lot of people liked, and that was about uh, cryptoids and like the search for <laughs> specific sort of like you know uh, mythical creatures like the Bigfoot and whatnot. Um, that sounded like a lot of fun. I'm gonna move over to something quickly here. Uh, one of the big VR things I saw was Tinker. And uh, the thing about these film festivals is that you often get these VR performances that are a lot like you're in a stage play, except uh, you're working with another actor and you're wearing a VR headset or something. So late last Friday, I put on the VR headset. I was put into a room with uh, an actor who was playing basically a grandpa. And he asked me a couple questions about my life. And we went through the scenario of basically somebody who, you know, who is... I was his grandchild. He, uh, the scenarios went from like two years old, me at two years old, me at like 10, 18, 24, just charting our relationship in one room. And we had some conversations and that was interesting because he was both kind of going off his script, but also pulling in intro, uh, info from my life that I had already given him. And basically it's like being part of a two person play, but it's also a VR experience about, um, Alzheimer's and memory loss and by being in that experience you talk about things and you start to see like his mental decline and how much harder it's to it is to talk with him and things like that I thought the actor was very good his name escapes me right now but the overall experience was it was kind of moving it does remind me of like talking to my grandparents and older people in my families and just like following them and noticing like, oh, things are getting a little harder for them to do now. So it's a little heartbreaking in that way. 
Um, this is also one of those experiences where I'm not sure anybody will actually be able to see it, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. That's what's so hard about writing and covering these things. Like some of them will end up in museums. Tinker is basically a performance thing that may pop up once in a while. But it was interesting. And, um, you know, I'll be writing about a bit of that soon. We're actually going to do a blurb post where we just jot down um, our thoughts on some of the more memorable things we saw at Sundance because it is hard to do an entire story around <laughs> some of these things. That's like the big problem with covering a film festival like this because we've noticed nobody cares about some of the VR footage because they can't actually see it. But maybe that's going to change this year with the Oculus Quest 2 and cheaper headsets coming. So there's that. Anything you want to shout out, Terrence, in terms of VR? Uh, well, I did check out Four Feet High, which I believe mm-hmm. you checked out yet last night as well, finally. Um, yep, yep. Which we discussed, and I believe you said it was one of the best in terms of, like, pure quality of the footage that you'd seen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was interesting in what it tackled. So it's a coming-of-age story about a uh, girl who is disabled and in a wheelchair, and her kind of grappling with her sexuality and it's set against the backdrop of like a feminist movement and a uh, sex education movement in Argentina. Mm -hmm. But it only really kind of lightly touches on all of these things. I really wanted to see it explore uh, some of those ideas more, um, especially putting it in the context of that, like sort of feminist uprising and the stuff for contraception. But I think both you and I had the same issue with this movie, which is, that uh, when you're watching a coming-of-age movie about a young person uh, maturing sexually, you're able to sure. put a little bit of distance between yourself and the subject on a on a screen. Um, being dumped into that room uh, through VR makes it a lot more unsettling. Uh, I am a 39-year-old man. I don't belong in a room with, like, 16-year-olds having sex. Not cool. You you wanted to call Chris Hansen on yourself. Yeah, I was like, I'm on a list now. I feel like I need to go around to my neighbors and knock on their door and let them know that I live down Uh the block. Um, And it's... It was was uncomfortable. I appreciate that they were probably doing some of this for effect, uh... I just did not necessarily appreciate said effect. <laughs> Doing being it in VR. Um, I hear you. It's certainly a little uncomfortable. Uh, I also think like uh, it's looking at this through like a Latin American culture too, where kids are maybe a little more open about it. And mm-hmm. the filmmakers are more open about showing a little bit of nudity or something with these younger folks and in America. We're like, Oh no, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, so I saw, I haven't seen the whole thing. I saw about half of it, but what I do want to call out is just, as a work of 360-degree video, which is where a lot of these VR movies, uh, this is where the whole thing kind of began, uh, it looks really good. Um, you know, It is stereoscopic, so they have like an actual 3D effect. Um, you get a real depth from the image. And I think they did a good job. Um, I forget the creator's names, but they did a great job of actually knowing where to place the camera. Whereas I think in the past, certainly when we started covering VR films like this, Everybody was just kind of like, I don't know, no film rule, like nothing I learned in film school actually applies here because now you're setting a camera where somebody needs to look forward, but also can look backwards and you have like environmental sound that kind of, you know, leads their attention all over the place. It seemed like people were just learning the rules of virtual filmmaking. And now I do think like we're at the point where like, oh, yeah, somebody's telling a really 
interesting story. It looks very good. And the camera movements actually mean something, right? Like, I feel like we're at least maturing um, VR filmmaking as a field, whereas before it was just like, a, I don't know, we're all just figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something uh, maybe I think that's something like people will actually be able to see if you have an Oculus Quest. Um, they haven't talked about distribution yet, but, you know, uh, within and a lot of other VR apps have 360 degree videos. Um, so they could easily like bring it to something like that. That wouldn't be too tough. If you're OK with possibly um, putting yourself <laughs> on a watch list. Yes, you can yeah. go out and see this. So this is actually a great way to start talking about like worst, weirdest things that you saw at the film festival this year. So, uh, Dev, what was the worst thing you saw this year? <laughs> I mean, listen, personal worst, um, and I didn't see anything that was too bad. It was just the thing that was maybe the most disappointing for me was the latest film from Ben Wheatley, which is called In the Earth, and it is a, it is basically pandemic horror. Like it, it's a low budget horror film he shot in the forest during COVID um, about a world where the pandemic is even worse, and it drives people mad and it makes them crazy. So it is very much a horror movie in the Ben Wheatley style, and I'm. I know people who love him. So here's the thing. And I'm looking at reviews of this movie and the movie reviewers really dig it. So I'm not going to argue too much with them. Some people really enjoy it. Um, but for me, I found it a little plotting, a little too long. And there wasn't much of like a an actual driving narrative other than a couple of people trying to get to the specific point in the forest. And, you know, weird shit happens in the forest. And there are a lot of strobing lights. There's a lot, a lot of like low budget effects and a lot of foot horror. Uh, somebody's foot just continuously gets mangled in this movie in increasingly hilarious and like terrifying ways. Uh, so there's that. But it's also two hours of that. And I need a little more. I saw people calling this movie something like... Um, Annihilation, you know, like Alex Garland's pitch perfect uh, semi sci fi horror movie that's all about identity and things like that. I love Annihilation. I love like a good, uh, you know, uh, ambiguous horror movie or sci fi film. This one just felt like it was like it was hitting a lot of style, you know, and not really accomplishing much with it. So I wasn't a huge fan, um, but I do know people who like it. If you like Ben Wheatley's stuff, Maybe you'd be into it. What about you, Terrence? What's the worst thing you saw in uh, the last I did week not get so? to see nearly as much as Devendra, um, unfortunately. So my my worst is probably going to be uh, four feet high, unfortunately. And that's... <laughs> and, and to be clear, I would say... in like moral worst. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the worst because I think it's bad. Uh, I, it's just the worst because I think it could have been so much more. And I don't mm -hmm. think that uh, the VR side of it necessarily added a bunch. Like, I think Devendra's right. And, like, technically the way it was employed was functional in a way that I haven't seen it be in other 360-degree uh, films. But I didn't feel like it added much uh, to the narrative. Mm -hmm. And all it did was make me uncomfortable. <laughs> So uh, because of those two things, I found myself disappointed in it. I wanted to like it more than I did, but it was not I hear bad. Uh, <laughs> what about weirdest <laughs> stuff? Like film festivals yeah. are known for weird stuff. What, what, what did you see that was weird? I think the weirdest thing I saw is the thing I want to shout out here. It's called Knights. Uh, Knights with three S's, so Knights. But it is it is sort of like it is an ASMR 
uh, erotic experience, they said. Uh, so I didn't know what I was really getting into. But it's basically you put on the VR headset, uh, somebody like a virtual wireframe model just starts dancing in front of you. And then like the VR controllers start vibrating a little. And you're like, oh, this is, is this a lap dance? Is this basically a VR lap dance of somebody like saying, um, also very like dissonant lyrics in a language I don't understand. I think it may be Russian. Um, but somebody like singing and like, um, also dancing and the VR stuff is happening and the like environmental audio that's in the Oculus Quest. The speakers aren't super great, but they do a good job of making it seem like sound is coming from all around you. All of that like combined to make this really like weird, trippy ASMR experience. Um, so I feel like people who watch ASMR YouTube videos may appreciate this. I thought it was fine. It was just like, I don't, I don't quite know what the point of it was other than showing off the fact that you can do trap somebody in VR with AM, ASMR, basically. <laughs> Anything from you, Terrence? I, easily, easily the weirdest thing was Prisoners of the Ghost Land, <laughs> which was yeah, uh, it's yeah. The, new, the new Nick Cage thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's gibberish. It's pure, <laughs> surreal gibberish. But uh, wonderful gibberish. Well, yeah. oh, thoroughly <laughs> yeah. enjoyable. So glad I watched it. <laughs> I didn't want it to end, mm-hmm. but I still have no idea what happened there's listen cowboys <laughs> geisha uh samurai samurai reservoir Yakuza, style yeah. dog style yep. like gangsters like zombies there's a cult of people who wear mannequin parts on their face mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's synchronized dancing and chanting i no no clue <laughs> no idea what was happening and i loved every moment of it <laughs> It's pretty wild. It is, uh, I should say, this movie is from the Japanese director, Sion Sono, who is known for being wild as hell, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, his movies are insane. Um, I believe Love Exposure is his, like, four-hour-long epic that is just all over the place. He has a couple movies on Netflix. Uh, I have to say, I kind of expected this movie to be wilder, knowing where Sion Sono was coming from, because there was not nearly enough Nick Cage being insane in this movie, right? Like, I wanted more, but it is certainly crazy and wild. Yeah. Here, here's what I'll say is I understand the wanting more Nick Cage being wild, yeah. but <laughs> I feel like he had so much to compete with on the being mm-hmm. wild side that it's not that he wasn't wild enough. It's just that he's finally in a context where Nick Cage seems normal. Oh, yeah, sure. He has he has no idea. <laughs> he's at home finally. And I will say like yeah. overall, this movie is sort of like Mad Max meets a spaghetti western meets a samurai film at yeah. times like it is all those things bundled it like with like sam raimi weirdo horror happening at times too so like it is everything all at once and it is certainly fun um i think the my favorite part is just seeing like uh nicholas cage fighting tak sakaguchi who is like this uh he He's an actor I love from this like low budget horror movie called Versus, but he's also an actor I believe they discovered because the director found him beating up a guy in an alley in Tokyo, <laughs> right? Like that's who he is. So like seeing Nick Cage fight this guy who became like sort of like a low budget action star in Japan is kind of hilarious mm-hmm. and he is also fun in it. So yeah, it's it's a fun thing and I'm sure it'll get distribution soon. Seems bound for midnight showings across the exactly. country once we can do midnight showings. Exactly. I'm going to run down just real quick a couple of things I really enjoy just to like get these names out there. But I saw All Light Everywhere, which is a documentary about 
basically how cameras have invaded our lives and how surveillance, you know, we are always being surveilled and kind of like the moral complications around that. I think it is kind of murky as a documentary. It is not as focused as something like, um, you know, what can I compare it to? Like even something like users, I feel like had like a real clear focus in terms of what it was trying to accomplish. Whereas all light is everywhere is just kind of all over the place. Um, but it's worth watching, especially if you care about um, the state of surveillance culture. I want to talk about Flea, which is an animated film um, about an Afghan refugee's experience and them basically using animation as a way both to hide their identity and to show just like the horrific tale that their family went through to get out of Afghanistan. They had to stay in Russia and make it over to Denmark and Sweden. And it is... It is a rough watch, but probably one of the most like emotionally propulsive things I've seen at Sundance. Um, and there are a couple of movies we'll all be able to see soon, like Judas and the Black Messiah, which is about uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader. Incredible movie. That's going to be on HBO Max uh, in a couple weeks. You know, so that's kind of where we are. And I can't wait until I can talk about this with everybody. Um, and I did say Coda, which is that uh, the film that Apple ended up buying. It is a very sweet teen drama, you know, and it is it kind of takes the high school template and uses it in unique ways because it is about a child who has who spent most of her life basically being the translator for her deaf family, her deaf parents and brother. So it is about that tension of trying to get out there and live your own life while also being an essential part of your family. So I don't think it's like a story that's been told very much before. So I think in that respect, it's also very good. It reminded me a lot of uh, Sound of Metal, which is an incredible film. Everybody listening to this right now, go watch The Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. Terrence, you need to watch it too. I was going to say, should I just pause this and add this to my watch list? You should just go watch it right now because it is about a heavy metal rocker played by Riz Ahmed, who at the beginning of the movie loses his earring. And it is a movie that's all about like the deaf community and somebody coming to terms with losing the thing that they love the most. And anyway, I'm talking too much about sound I've, metal, but go check it out. I've, yeah. I've heard good things. It is, it is, in fact, on my list of things that I need to watch. And Riz Ahmed is fantastic. Yeah. Any other stuff you want to talk about, Terrence, when it comes to Sundance or, you know, this is your first Sundance. You know, this is yeah. your chance to actually experience this. It's also mine because normally Sundance happens almost right after CES. And I just don't have the mental energy to go from the CS log to mm -hmm. a snowy town in Utah and suffer through that and also figure out how to cover all these movies too. How did you feel about this? Uh, I mean, I, I'm in a similar boat with you. Like there's no way I'm ever going to have the energy to go immediately post CES and go do yeah. Sundance. Um, similarly, I feel that way about like Nam, which happens immediately afterwards. And it's all like music gear out in LA. I don't, mm -hmm. I think we've gone like one year, uh, James true, and Billy Steele, we sent them from CES to NAM. Basically, just left <laughs> Vegas and went straight to LA. Uh, didn't see their families for like two weeks. And that sounds rough. Um, yeah. So being able to do this remotely um, was great. And it's also, you know, uh, Sundance is expensive to cover. Mm -hmm. um, and as a site that traffics primarily in consumer technology spending a bunch of money covering a film festival <laughs> it isn't necessarily super high on our list uh right. so the pandemic has been terrible for so many reasons but remote sundance it took a pandemic for me to get to cover it <laughs> um so silver lining there i guess uh for sure 
I do want to shout out one more movie though, real quick, uh, which is not tech related at all. There's no tech angle whatsoever, but uh, Street Gang, the documentary about Sesame Mm. Street, I'm sure it will find a a distributor if it didn't already sell. Um, It's really excellent, really interesting. I only cried twice. So like (laughs) it's, it's at least slightly less emotionally draining than um, the Mr. Rogers documentary, but it's really great. Mm. Um, <laughs> definitely, definitely well worth it. There's not much else to say it's about that. It's, just, it's a documentary about the making of Sesame Street and it's great. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Terrence. And, uh, we will, you know, check out all of our Sundance coverage and gadget. We still got some reviews coming up and, um, let us know, like, what would you, what would it take for you to go see a virtual film festival? You know, is this something you'd be interested in? You could drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. Let's move on to some other news. Uh, This week, a surprising bombshell happened just during an afternoon, randomly, right? I believe it was the afternoon of Amazon's earnings. Jeff Bezos announced that he'll be stepping down as Amazon CEO. Uh, In the third quarter, he'll be transitioning to the role of executive chair of the Amazon board. So he'll still be a part of the company and still be kind of guiding certain things. But Andy Jassy will be taking over as CEO. He has been heading up uh, AWS since uh 2016 i mean he founded that business in 2003 so this is a huge changing of the guard jeff bezos founded amazon in 1994 and i think among the tech companies we talk about you know it is it is everywhere you know his dream was to make the everything store and i think he basically accomplished that right yeah i don't think there's any arguing that um Mm -hmm. you know for better or worse amazon is probably the first place you go to or think of when it's time to buy almost anything short a house or a car. And I'm fairly certain you can buy both of those things on Amazon. Too. You could buy a car on Amazon now. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, uh, he he succeeded probably more than his wildest dreams could have ever mm-hmm. been. Um, it's interesting that it's going to that the new CEO is going to be the head and founder of the AWS branch, though. Mm-hmm. Um I think whether that's an admission that Amazon's core money-making business isn't retail or whether it's just a this is what we need to conquer next move uh, Mm -hmm. is up for interpretation, but, you know. I mean, Amazon has been a cloud company for for a while now. For the better part of a decade, AWS uh, powers so many things, so many other services and apps and things. When AWS goes down, it feels like half the internet falls apart. Um, but yeah, we are, you know, we're at a point, it's just, what is, what is Jeff Bezos going to go do next? Is he going to go do his supervillain thing? Like, uh, Hey, there, there's a lot of memes about Jeff Bezos out there, him eating a roasted iguana. Yeah. Him uh, playing with these, <laughs> you know, uh, robotic arms and just like laughing maniacally as like, he's, it's like a telepresence robot. I believe he was controlling, but it was these robotic arms that can pick up and he can actually feel things. And then there's him. As as the freaking Terminator, where he just I believe walked into a conference one day, uh, just wearing a vest and his and two guns, two guns that he could not holster, you know, because he was <laughs> buff as hell. And it is hilarious to look at that photo and then look at photos of Jeff Bezos from the mid '90s, where like he was just the nerdy dad who mm-hmm. wanted to start a store, and you know, he I mean, in the early days of Amazon, he was moving books in the trunk of his car i believe at one point he was riding them on his bicycle to get things delivered around seattle you know it is crazy to think of like how far amazon has gone but also 
it survived the crazy world of like the 90s, right? Where there were so many uh, electronic retailers, so many web retailers. Pets.com famously fell apart. Yep. So many died. Amazon survived and survived in ways that a lot of people didn't expect because they have this weird strategy of uh, not really earning much profit, right? Like they would earn money and then complete, immediately like reinvest it back into the company. And Bezos also made these big bets. Like AWS was a big bet from him that the cloud would be a major thing and he was right and then sometimes he's completely wrong like with the fire phone and you know they were just too late for that yeah yeah uh i don't really know how much i can add to that um (laughs) is it i i i was thinking isn't there one more uh weird jeff bezos is a super villain image of him like basically piloting uh what amounts to a robot from robocop oh yes there is there is i did find yeah i totally forgot about that yeah Um, wow (laughs) i mean are we we're we're letting this guy loose just on the world with complete free time now yeah i don't know what this feels irresponsible uh if he does not go on to be a world-class supervillain like if we are not starting basically the mcu in real life i'm gonna be slightly (laughs) disappointed the MCU in real life is basically everybody uh, criticizing tech right now. <laughs> like it is not a, it is not a very heroic looking force. But hey, we need we need these heroes out there. Jeff Bezos is probably going to spend a lot more time on his what was it fifty million dollar clock, his atomic clock. So there is a there's a lot of stuff. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> we're looking at it now in the chat. Um, I'm scared, guys. I'm scared. As you should be. I'm terrified. Let's move on to another big story that's been hyped up for a while. We're hearing more and more, uh, at least from CNBC, that Apple and Hyundai are close to a deal to build the legendary Apple car. Um, That may sound like a weird pairing, but if you haven't been paying attention to cars for a while, Hyundai and Kia, its sister company, um, they're they're both basically the same company, um, they've been doing a lot of great tech like they've done a great job of creating great platforms for their cars that totally outdoes what ford and gm and a lot of like american car companies are offering and certainly even more than a lot of the european companies like they and or the japanese car companies like they have been just really working hard at innovating and i could see why apple is would potentially go to them so the idea is that uh they're close to forming a deal that would build a fully autonomous car at the Kia plant uh, by 2024 in Georgia. Everything is happening in <laughs> Georgia now. So, yeah, I will try to do some recon and see what I can find at that Kia plant. You're, you're ahead of the curve. The, the one thing mm-hmm. that I find slightly surprising about this, and it's the only thing that I find surprising, is that Kia is better known for being like a budget, low-end yep. car company yep. and seeing yep. Apple go to them as opposed to Mercedes, BMW, or somebody with a little bit more uh, cachet in terms of like being a premium uh, car is slightly shocking uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, Apple Apple has never tried to position themselves as like the wallet-friendly everyman exactly. brand. I don't, think, I don't think it's really about the price consciousness here. It is more about like the tech that these companies have and then We've covered Mercedes a bit. We've covered some of the higher end uh, automakers. Their car platforms aren't really that modern. Like they may have the cool concept cars. They may have cool like integration or something, but they don't always have like, hey, this platform can power electric cars that are actually affordable by normal people. Um, They don't even have a lot of those things, whereas Kia does. And, you know, both Hyundai and Kia, I believe, have plug-in hybrids right now that 
compete cost-wise with what Toyota's offering. And um, the Kia Telluride, right? Now, like that beautiful, massive SUV is like the thing everybody wants, every family wants, because it's like a seven-seater beautiful thing with like inside the interior quality almost feels just as good as something you get from Mercedes for 20,000 less. So yeah, it's an interesting potential partnership. And I could see it like if the Apple car was under $50,000, like it would fly off the shelf. Like it would be like the Tesla competitor we've kind of been waiting for. Right. Mm -hmm. And one more thing that I want to bring up and it is related to something I say all the time is that Google is very bad (laughs) at consumer products. They are apparently shutting down all of their Stadia game studios, including, you know, legendary uh, creators like Jade Raymond, uh, all the work they've been doing for the past couple of years, just down the drain. Uh, those studios will not exist anymore. I believe they said that they'll try to, you know, rehire some people in these studios to other parts of the company, but it's going to be tough to do. It seems like Google's just completely backing out of this side of its vision uh, of Stadia and of being in games. I don't know how you can be a company that wants to be in video games that's not actually making your own games. That's the weird thing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Terrence. Uh, not a ton. I mean, I've never used Stadia. I well, Actually, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. Um, I did when it initially launched like as a beta thing. I think I mm-hmm. played um, whatever the Assassin's Creed w- that was out at the time uh, for about... 10 minutes just it was like mm-hmm. this it works yeah it, yeah it's functional um <laughs> and that was about the end of it i have a stadia pro setup that i have never used it's just you know one of those things where like oh they're offering it for free if you bought this i was like i guess i have a chromecast 4k now without a 4k tv to use it on um <laughs> this is this is basically the extent of my experience with stadia i'm but i'm not shocked by any of this as you've as you said google is bad at consumer products um and i feel like they've launched and killed more services than most companies have launched like period yeah most um, definitely yeah you know we I'm sure we've famously like gone through their famous like social media things that have just like died repeatedly. The gaming thing just feels like an extension of that in a way. Like it's this is not the first time that Google has tried to make a play uh, for gaming. I don't think it'll be the last um, and that they're canceling it. Having failed spectacularly at it is not a shock Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, this comes on the heels of Stadia just being kind of a disaster as a launch, too, because it technically launched last year. Um, it The pricing was very weird because it was a service that forced people to both pay monthly uh, a monthly fee, uh, but also buy the games on the service. Whereas yeah. I think right now the world just wants an all you can eat like, hey, I'm going to pay you 10, 15 bucks a month. Just let let me play the games. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I, I never understood that. That was one of the things uh, when it launched that it was like, who would do this? Mm-hmm. I don't pay for a subscription to Spotify or to now YouTube Music, formerly Google Play Music, to uh-huh. then also buy albums on top of that. I subscribe <laughs> to it so that you give me the things that I want and I don't have to go out and buy them individually. Mm-hmm. Um, n- uh, completely unrelated to all that, by the way. It's Bandcamp Friday. Don't give Spotify your money. Go buy albums directly from artists on Bandcamp today. 
<laughs> that's why that's why I still do buy some albums because I want to support those folks directly. And same for movies and stuff too. Like, hey, these subscription services are great, but artists can use your money as well. Um, just when it comes to Stadia, uh, it does sound like they're working harder at partnering with other companies. Uh, they want to use Stadia more as like a white label platform that you know other developers can use to be like, hey, do you want to demo this new game we're releasing? Go to our website hit a button and the Stadia thing will launch and you'll just be able to play it in your web browser or something. Or maybe, you know, the Stadia app that's going to be heading to some TVs, maybe it's going to be a thing where you could just like instantly start playing a demo. And I do think like that may be more the potential for both Stadia and other services too. Microsoft has xCloud that's part of um, Game Pass and everything. And Maybe, like, I feel like that's something Microsoft would want to do eventually. Like, rather than spend 20, 30 minutes downloading, you know, a dozen gigabytes or something of a game or a demo, you hit a button, you're in it, you're streaming it, you could test it out, and then you'll know if you want to buy it or not, or Mm -hmm. know if you want to keep playing it through Game Pass. I still think Microsoft, this is Microsoft's game to lose right now, given everything they've done with Game Pass. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see more from them, and hopefully things won't end too tragically for Stadia. Moving on to just what we're working on this week, I've still got some Sundance reviews coming. I have a review of A Glitch in the Matrix that should be up by the time you're listening to this podcast. And, um, you know, we'll see if there's any potential other coverage. We're going to have a roundup of Sundance material, just uh, some thoughts on other things we've seen, other VR, other movies. And we're going to have that special bonus interview episode with Natalia Alma. Um, We're going to have that special bonus interview episode with Natalia Almada and Rodney Asher coming up soon. So keep an eye out for that on the Engadget podcast feed. Terrence, what are you working on? Uh, Well, I'm going to write you a like 3000 word soliloquy on how great we're all going to the World's Fair is. Um, Please. We're going to shoehorn that into the roundup piece for (laughs) uh, Sundance. Um, and then, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly churning away on stuff in the background. Uh, I think the next thing coming up for me is hopefully late next week, uh, review of the poly effects Bebo is what it is called oh. now. It was formerly the digit and Bebo two separate, uh, guitar effects pedals that were then merged into one. It's like a crazy touch screen, basically virtual modular synth in a guitar pedal format. It's okay. I'm sure that makes no sense to like <laughs> half of the people listening to this, but uh, it's a crazy, uh, super interesting thing. So hopefully late next week, maybe early the following week after that. Look for that on the site. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for the Engage podcast. As always, our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by this guy, our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. Uh, shout out to Terrence and go check out our, we do have a SoundCloud channel where you can see some of the demos of things Terrence has been working on too. Uh, this podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find me online and at Davindra on Twitter. Terrence, where can we find you? Uh, I'm back on Twitter. Um, after oh a <laughs> two year hiatus, uh, it's just at Terrence O'Brien. Lots of E's, no A's is how I usually tell people. Uh, but also, I think more importantly, I have now have a public facing Instagram account. So go follow me over there uh, because Twitter is not really video and audio friendly. Gear demos and stuff uh, 
underscore Terrence underscore O'Brien underscore because the internet and when you're late to getting names for things, you end up with complicated nonsense. Go get your clubhouse name, Terrence. Come on. <laughs> you can all email us at podcast at Engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. Thanks, folks. We're out and keep an eye out for that special interview episode. I'm on a list now. I feel like I need to go around to my neighbors and knock on their door and let them know that I live down the block.